Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey J. Niehaus, author of the new book, When Did Eve Sin? The Fall and Biblical Historiography, just published in 2020 by Lexham Press. Dr. Niehaus is the Senior Professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, I think we're in for such a treat today to talk about When Did Eve Sin? It's a it's a small little book, but I think it's just remarkably clear and punchy, and it, it tackles this long history of biblical interpretation that compares Genesis 2 and 3, and how some have suggested that Eve perhaps misquoted God in response to the serpent's temptation. I think as the book shows, this interpretive tradition is far-reaching, so I suspect that many of our listeners have probably encountered some variety of this interpretation. I know I've come across it many times, so I know we're all eager to hear more about the work. But first, Jeff, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your yourself, your career and your work, and, and how you found yourself coming to this project. Well, thanks, uh, Ryan. And again, it's a pleasure to be here and a privilege. Um and uh, I, this really ought to start with the fact that I was not always a Christian. And of course, probably any Christian would say that, but some, you know, come, they kind of grew up into it. But I was in my uh, late 20s when I was doing a PhD in English literature at Harvard on the English poet Percy Shelley. Um, and uh, I'd love to go into my testimony in detail because it's almost a theophany uh, the way it happened. But just to say that's where I came to the Lord. And uh, after about a year, I was convinced I should go into ministry. So I studied for a MDiv at Gordon-Conwell. And then I went on to study in England, in Liverpool, under the Assyriologist Alan Millard and the Egyptologist Ken Kitchen. Uh, came back and started teaching at Gordon-Conwell. Um, and so my interests very much were always really in the, in the area of biblical theology. And uh, after a decade or so of teaching, that's where I really started to write and publish um, the inspiration for that, in a way, I think, well, the inspiration was the Holy Spirit, I'd like to say, but um, in ter- human terms, my old mentor, Meredith Klein, who uh, was a very uh, thoughtful and good teacher and writer. Uh, I don't agree with him on everything, but then again, as Socrates said about Plato, or rather Aristotle said about Plato, you know, you admire your mentor, you don't agree with him about everything. That's what got me started. And so I've written a three-volume biblical theology with Lexham also, uh, and then most recently uh, with them, this little book, When Did Eve Sin? And the book really uh, develops a, a question or a problem, if you will, that I've been teaching for decades at Gordon-Conwell. And the base, the bottom line, as we'll be talking about, is that when Eve, or the woman, she hasn't yet been named Eve, that has, Adam names her Eve after the fall, so I refer to her as the woman or the wife of Adam. Um, 
you know, she, the, 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 the tradition is that, well, when she answers the serpent and says, well, God, um, God did tell us that you may eat from any tree of the garden, but there's this one, you may not eat of it or touch it. Well, if you read Genesis 2.17, there's nothing about touching it. And so Dr. Klein said in his course, um, well, you see, she's already going astray because she's adding to what God said. Well, now, if you read the two passages, Genesis 2 and 3, that seems reasonable. And I thought, well, that's sure. Why not? That makes sense. But the more I thought about it, I, I realized that that could not be true. And we can talk about that if you want to get into things. Now, you've mentioned the presenting issue of, the, of these two texts in Genesis 2 and 3. Um, what are some of the problems that this has created for interpreters? What are may, maybe some of the ways that various commentators have tried to, to explain what's going on with this additional detail uh, that Eve shouldn't even touch this forbidden fruit? Mm. Well, first of all, and in fairness to all those, this is the 2,000 years of scholarship with which I disagree. <laughs> uh, uh, in fairness, you've got to say, if you read Genesis 2.17b, where the Lord says to Adam, but there's this one tree, you must not eat from its fruit, the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the serpent uh, asks the woman in Genesis 3, well, did God say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? And she says, well, there is this one, we may not eat from it or touch it. Well, when you compare those two accounts, it certainly looks like the woman's adding something that wasn't there before. Um, and so that's, that is where the history of interpretation almost unanimously has been with variations. Mm -hmm. The older Jewish interpreters thought this. Some of them thought that, well, actually, uh, God did tell Adam both things, uh, but he uh, didn't tell his wife um, because he was afraid that uh, she couldn't handle the truth. Um, and another one says, Rabbi Nathan, for instance, around 700 AD says that, um, well, okay, so here's what happened. Uh, the woman said this, and then what did that wicked serpent do? He grabbed the tree with both hands and feet and shook it till the fruit fell off even. And then he said, you see, I've touched it, but I haven't died. So you can touch it and, and implicitly eat it too and not die. So when you read the older rabbis, it's like, you know, they, whatever they thought up, they felt free to add. They, they were okay with doing that. Um, but they, you detect even in those things some desire to sort of psychoanalyze the woman and figure out what's going on inside her head. And that has very much been the truth in the Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition, too. Um, and so, but the bottom line always is that she's adding for some reason. Um, uh, one scholar thinks that, uh, you know, Eichro thinks that, um, well, she didn't feel God's command was strong enough, so she added to it. Um, and you get all sorts of variations in that. Um, what I would argue is that there's no way to know what was going on inside the woman's head. In fact, you, you aren't told anything about that until Genesis 3, 6, when you are told she looked and she saw the tree, that it was good, it was desirable to make one wise. That's when you're told a little bit of what she's thinking. But before then, you're told nothing. So it's really best, I think, to be very modest and say, look, I'm not going to insert stuff that I don't know is there uh, and I can't prove is there. And, you know, there's an old saying among the rabbis, which they should have taken more seriously themselves. And that was, he who adds subtracts. You know, if you add your own stuff to scripture, you're actually diminishing it. So don't do it. Well, we've we've talked about this this 
old history of interpretation. I, I wonder if we could um, just get a sense on how much um, of the of the modern biblical scholarship, both on the on the the critical side and a more um, evangelical side, are still wrestling with some of these same issues. Um, just could you give us a little sense on the current state of the field of interpretation? Well, yeah. I mean, as far as the liberal side goes, I don't like using the term, but you've got to use some term to characterize schools of thought or groups of thinkers. Um, first of all, I got to understand they don't think any of this ever happened, um, but uh, they think that the meaning of the passage is they, they just follow the same tradition, the same thinking that she's adding to what God said for whatever reason. Um the conservatives, or so to speak, evangelicals, I think pretty much do the same as far as I can tell. I mean, very recently, my dear former colleague, good brother Greg Beale, and his New Testament biblical theology explores this, and he comes to the same conclusion. You know, she had, in fact, he too is psychoanalyzing her, suggesting that she had her own purposes in mind um, by, uh, you know, saying what she did and doing what she did. Uh, in other words, she was kind of almost talking herself into um, uh, a position where she would commit the sin. Um, but uh, even that is sin, um, so I don't think it works. So this is, and this is true, you know, I, I mean, I, I talk about this a bit later, because I'm working on a three-volume work on righteousness, but there you see the same thing. People, as in that case, uh, you know, some of these ideas started in Germany with the, the liberal scholars, not what we're talking about, but the righteousness stuff. But scholars to this day, uh, writing in English especially, just repeat the same ideas. So they do. They People think people, you know, if you repeat something for 2000 years, people, <laughs> people are going to think, well, this is a settled issue. You know, yeah. when I when I read it for the first time, I think, what in the world is going on here? Why does she say that? Um, but then when you become acquainted with the scholarship, you think, well, okay, people have figured this out, they've understood it, and this is what she's doing. But I just think it really does not do justice to the data that we have, and especially to what Paul says, two things, what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, and what sin really is. You know, if the traditional view is right, she's already sinning when she answers the serpent, and I think that just cannot be. Now, I wonder if you could describe a little bit about how you have um, chosen to approach this text. What are some of the governing commitments that inform your method? And, and maybe we'll, we'll start there, and then maybe we'll, we'll touch some more details okay. in a moment. Okay. Um, and what I'm going to say here really applies to the first two chapters of Genesis as well as into the third. And that is these chapters tell us a lot, but there's a lot that they leave out. And so the temptation to fill in what's been left out is very strong, and that's what's operating here. So the first commitment is to understand what we can from the evidence we have in Genesis 2 and 3, but not to go beyond it, not to add to it. The next thing is to look at what kind of reporting do we have here. In Genesis 2, we have what's called, a, for the literary folks, a third-person omniscient account. You know, you have an overview. This yeah. is what was done. God said this, Adam did that, and so on. In Genesis 3, you get a first-person retelling of that by the woman, um, and in that case, she adds information. Well, so that's what's going on, and then the question that should arise is, and nobody has explored this. 
But the question that's, except in this book, <laughs> but the question that should arise is, well, does this happen anywhere else in the Bible? And it turns out that it happens a couple places with regard to Abraham. Um, Abraham in Genesis 10, they're going down to Egypt, and he says to his wife, hey, you're a good looker. Uh, tell them you're my sister, because if you don't, they may kill you, kill me and take you. And so he does, but that, that they do that, but it doesn't work out too well. Um, well, back then again, in that, sorry, that was in Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 20, he and Sarah are going to the kingdom of Abimelech, and he says, tell them the same thing. And God warns Abimelech in a dream, no, no, you can't have her because she's his wife. And Abimelech says to Abraham the next day, he says, why did you tell me this, that she's your sister? I could have committed a great sin. And he said, well, she is, in fact, my half-sister. But besides, I didn't know if there was any fear of God in this place. And then he says, wherever we've gone, I've told her, this is how you can show you love me. Say, you're my sister. Now, how many times did that play out between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20? You don't know. Mm. But clearly, in Genesis 20, you get more information than you were provided in the previous chapters from the first person, namely Abraham. And finally... If you consider all the Abrahamic material, Genesis 12 through 22, all that third person reporting about Abraham. In Genesis 26, 5, the Lord, first person reporting, tells Isaac, I'm reaffirming this covenant I had with your father Abraham because Abraham obeyed all my requirements, statutes, laws, and decrees. Well, what were those? We're not told any of those in all those previous chapters, except he does say, walk before me and be blameless. And he says, be circumcised um, and circumcise your children. But that's all you're told. And so, again, third person reporting and then a first person account that adds information. Finally, just that this is not limited to the Old Testament. In Acts 9, you have a third person account of Paul's Damascus Road experience. Then in Acts 21 and 26, Paul, first person account, adds information to what was reported in Acts 9. So it's a pattern of historiography. Um, and the point is that the first account is laconic. It leaves things out. The second account adds information. And I think that's what's going on when you compare Genesis 2 and 3. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. It's that, that pattern that you've shown um, across all of these various biblical texts. Now, I wonder, uh, apart from these strictly textual hermeneutical issues, uh, what do you see as some of the theological issues at stake in um, in the the dominant view that Eve has either added or or misremembered or is somehow um, deceiving the deceiver? What are the theological issues that you have found are at stake with this prevalent view? Well, the main thing I think is one's understanding of sin. Um, and I think the thing that really undercuts this prevailing view is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, that the woman being deceived became a sinner. So in other words, she was deceived first, and then she was a sinner, and she did the act of sin. And that accords with what Hebrews sa says, don't let your hearts be hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. Well, when the woman answers the serpent's question, she's just answering the serpent's question. She has, he hasn't tried to deceive her yet. She's not deceived. You can't argue that. So she can't possibly be in sin. So her, however, if she were adding to sin, because sin, I am profoundly convinced, the real definition of it is in Romans 14, 23, where Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. 
In other words, what is faith? Faith is agreement with God, and that's another whole conversation, but it's amening God. And my old mentor, Meredith Klein, wrote an article back this years ago, Abraham's Amen. Um, it's like when somebody's preaching and somebody in the congregation, something the preacher says really connects with them, and they say, Amen. They may even add, preach it. Um, <laughs> what's, going, what's going on then? That person really owns, embraces, totally agrees with what the preacher has said at that point. That's what faith is, totally owning and agreeing with God. When you put your faith in Christ, when I do, when anyone does, they see what he's offering on the cross. And if they don't go any further, they're no worse, they're no better off than the devil because he knows that. But they, they not only perceive it, but they amen it. Mm -hmm. They embrace it. They own it. That's what faith is. So in other words, whatever's not completely in agreement with God is sin which is why we need a savior because there's no way in the world we can be in agreement with God about everything. But so Eve, if she's adding to what God says, she's not amening him at all. She's disagreeing with him. So she's already in sin, which contradicts what Paul wrote in first Timothy two. Mm -hmm. If Adam deceived her, he's already in sin. Um, and moreover, if they can't remember, that's another problem yet, because if they had faulty memories Let's just remember, when God looked at them in the created order, he said, it was all very good. Um, there was no sin in it. There was no flaw in it. Um, but if God created Adam and his wife with faulty memories so that they might not remember something, so that they might not remember what he commanded, he, he created them in a, in a condition that was almost doomed to sin and die. And I uh, really don't think that's God's character. Um, he did create them with a choice. You and I can distort our memories to, you know, so we can do something that we think is okay, even though something we remember about the Bible or whatever tells us it isn't. But we can kind of conveniently forget that. That's another matter. That's not a fault of our memory. That's a fault of our will and our desire. Mm. Um, and that's what, that's what hit with Eve in, in verse 6. She saw that it was desirable. Um, so there are a lot of things involved here and a lot of things that need to be looked at a little more closely before we would glibly say, well, maybe Adam misremembered or maybe his wife misremembered. I don't think it's possible before the fall. Obviously, after the fall, we can misremember things, right? Right. We suffer from the noetic effects of sin. Uh, the, the sin has affected our thinking processes and we can remember things wrongly and all sorts of things can go wrong. Um, but not not the case with Adam and his wife. I think. It's absolutely interesting. Now, um, Jeff, I just I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us about your book. When did Eve sin? Now, before we let you go, I wonder, do you have any projects? You just mentioned uh, a new work on righteousness, three volumes. I think you said. Um, what else can we keep an eye out for um, on the horizon for you? Well. Um Last summer, uh, I, when this book, When Did Eve Sin, came out, I also published an article with the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, Righteousness in the Created Order, Appreciation and Critique of a Novel Idea. Uh, Hans Heinrich Schmidt, Swiss-German theologian, uh, produced the, the first new idea on righteousness in nearly 100 years, and that was that it was conformity to the created order. Um, the tradition that developed in the 19th century out of Germany was that righteousness, and especially God's righteousness, had to do with his grace, his salvation, his covenant faithfulness. And this shows up, uh, this was picked up by scholars in English. N.T. Wright is maybe the outstanding example of it. 
who interestingly enough is the heir to that tradition, but never even mentions the scholars who produced it. Hmm. That's another, that's a curious question there, but anyhow, he, you know, the view is that God's righteousness is his commitment to be the savior of his people. And uh, Israel's righteousness is a status that God confers on them. And I'd say, no, this is asymmetrical thinking about righteousness, and it really doesn't work. My proposal is, and you'll find this in the dictionaries and now and then in scholarship, that God is the standard of righteousness. Um, and all the dictionaries agree that righteousness means conformity to a standard, but the history of scholarship, nobody agrees on what the standard is. Right. Um, but there's, there is now the prevailing view that, that right represents. I'd say no, righteousness is not asymmetrical. Righteousness really is conformity to God's being and doing. Um, and that's true for God. He is true to himself. He conforms to his own nature and does what is consistent with it. And if you or I are righteous, we are so to the degree that we conform to God and we do as he would do. The supreme example is Jesus. He who sees me sees the Father, right? He conformed to his Father's being, and I do what I see the Father doing. He conformed to his Father's doing. Um, so that's the thing. And, and the first volume explores all the scholarship. The second volume explores every occurrence of righteousness in the Old Testament. The third volume explores every occurrence of righteousness in the New Testament. It's written. I'm revising through it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I, although it, you know, it has to be a bit technical, um, I, I'm trying to make it as user-friendly as possible, which is my goal. Because I think if you're going to write something and put it out there, it should be an act of service. You should be serving your readers. Um, and you don't need a lot of jargon to do that. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your service, um, both in this, this forthcoming book, which I'm so excited for, and for um, for this book, When Did Eve Sin? The Fall in Biblical Historiography. You can get your copy now from Lexham Press. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. Did you know that there are over 100 subject channels on the NBN Network with over 12,000 episodes recorded to date? Be sure to head over to newbooksnetwork.com and browse our catalog to hear the latest and the subjects that interest you most. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day.